This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. We are on our second of three discussions of foundational documents linked to the colonial period of United States history. Before we go any further, though, please let me remind you, if you enjoy our podcast, please help us spread the word. Text an episode to a friend, because when you share, we grow. So, last week we met Patrick Henry and discussed his fiery speech to the Virginia Convention, ending with the famous phrase, Give me liberty or give me death. Today we tackle the almost immortal Declaration of Independence, (laughs) written by someone who many refer to as the American Sphinx, or Thomas Jefferson, third president (laughs) of the United States. Yes, and I do look forward to discussing uh, a little bit about this controversial man with you as well as this document. And it's really the only document I know of that is printed in its entirety in almost every English and history textbook in the United States. And it has been for as long as I can tell. Of course, from a literary standpoint, the Declaration of Independence is really just a propaganda pamphlet meant to inspire people to take up arms in a cause that the writer found to be just. And the world really have seen hundreds of these kinds of documents, and they've been met with various degrees of acceptance. Well, even in the United States, we have quite a large collection, and we've even featured my one of my personal favorites on this podcast, the one written by Elizabeth Cady Stanton. However, the Declaration of Independence does stand out as unique. It's been regarded as the charter of American and even universal liberties. Since 1776, there have been over 120 declarations of independence all over the world of various sorts, some as recent as the 2014 Constitution of Tunisia, which echoed many ideas that were made famous in the American Declaration of Independence. So what an amazing legacy 
for anyone, really. Uh, and maybe that's the reason why he's on the nickel and he has a monument and there's lots of <laughs> tributes to Thomas there's Jefferson. No doubt. But on the flip side, especially in modern days, uh, we will read, well, just studying for this podcast. I mean, there's just no end to the criticism that you can see of Jefferson as a person and even the declaration itself, just the declaration itself has been caught things as unoriginal and a sophomore proclamation of vanity. I liked that one. (laughs) (laughs) You liked it for its pomposity. (laughs) Yes, I did. The truth obviously lies somewhere uh, in between a lot of these different things that people are saying. Of course, it's not a treatise of flawless ideals, but it's also not a conspiracy of someone out to create mass domination of the world. And Jefferson himself would never even have claimed that the ideas that he expressed in the Declaration of Independence were really unique to him. He was an admitted Anglophile. He loved the British system of government and their idea, really, of natural rights. And he deeply respected what it took over that long struggle that the British people had lived through to really kind of define for the world this idea of self-government. But he did resent King George, no doubt about that. He saw what was going on and what he wanted to be a part of was to help make a framework that would make a future possible. And there is no debating that many of the universally accepted ideals of liberty and the value of each individual that we, lots of us believe, come directly from across time and from across the Atlantic, from a large collection of political thinkers, not just one, most famously John Locke, though. And I would tell you that if Thomas Jefferson had known about MLA citations in 1776, I suspect we would have seen some footnotes. Well, and I'm sure if you had been his teacher... <laughs> he would have known how to do it properly. You would have, yes. <laughs> you would have forced him to do that. Oh, one thing I want to say about the, the potential controversies regarding... Um, Thomas Jefferson is just this. His life has been dissected down to the microscopic level for 200 years. I don't think that's a treatment that anybody wants. Oh, no. (laughs) If anybody were to dig into any individual's life for 200 years, you're going to find all kinds of things. So that's true. These ideas go back to the Magna Carta and the English Petition of Rights and the Bill of Rights in 1689, as well as several British and French political philosophers. But even closer to home than John Locke, the most famous paragraph in the whole declaration The phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, really is an adaptation from a draft of the Declaration of Rights for Virginia written by a man named George Mason. Mason had said, all men are born equally free and independent. In fact, Jefferson kind of started with Mason's draft in several places and whittled it down to perfect the language and make it more concise The truth is, and Jefferson even stated himself, that the Declaration was never really intended to be an original or novel creation. He reminded those who asked him later in life about this document that he was most proud of, that his assignment had been to produce, and I quote, an expression of the American mind, and to give that expression the proper tone and spirit called for by the occasion. I mean, he was proud of giving voice to a thought that was not his alone, but was the heart of a unified group and perhaps even a nation. 
Uh, and Jefferson will build on the idea we introduced with Patrick Henry, the whole idea of liberty and freedom. And we can't forget those two terms as we look at both documents. Uh, and that really refers to self-rule and minimal government. Well, of course. And I love all that, although it's arguable uh, if he were echoing an accepted sentiment by everyone or trying to create one. But for me, it's really remarkable that this document is not about the man who wrote it. And some pieces are, but this one is about something larger because Jefferson was not this apostolic virtuoso priest-like guru. And there are parts of his personal story that I find awful and infuriating nor was he this forceful mover of men or biblical prophet. At the time of the writing of the Declaration of Independence, he was just pretty much this up-and-coming Virginian aristocrat, and he certainly was definitely not an omniscient sage who was creating this idea no one had ever heard of. It's definitely not possible to argue that Thomas Jefferson was a politically correct figure. In fact, it's obvious that the way we think of the world today would have been so strange to him. We have to remember, and I've heard it said, you can never forget that Jefferson was pre-Freud, pre-Darwin, pre-Einstein, pre-Picasso, pre-Keynes, pre-Frederick Douglass, pre-Susan B. Anthony, pre-Mahatmas Gandhi, pre-all of modern thought. He is actually a real historical human being and very much a product of the values of the 18th century world. So that part's not surprising. What is surprising are that the ideas that he gave voice to were actually bigger than his age, and they ended up and they have become an embodiment of something that would mean more than brilliant as he was. Even he was capable of ever really understanding their ideals, aspirations, collected from different groups of people that had really evolved over time, but he voiced them as one single individual, and he wrote them in a way that was beautiful and understandable and inspirational and transformative. And these words, they still inspire, and, and they mean more to us sometimes, even in our present moment, than maybe to him. I don't know. It's this rom lofty, romantic 18th century language for sure, that's nice, but he's going to say that it, and this is something to think about, that it defines a deep truth that many believe came from the heart of divinity, the heart of the creator God himself, if you're inclined to view the world that way. And that's why these words were transformative. And what we have seen is that people, many people, millions of people, and it's important to note that many of these people he himself did not consider to be his equal, but they and we have understood these words maybe better than he was able to understand them in his own cultural context. When it, and just before we get started, and I think it is time to get started, here is a paradoxical thought to start us out with, because no matter what you think of Jefferson, and some people love him and some people don't, or what you think of this document, the truth is, if you're listening to this podcast, you were probably very influenced by Thomas Jefferson. In fact, if you don't like Jefferson, it's probably because the contradictions he expressed in how he lives his life or lived his life bother you. But if those contradictions in his life bother you, 
it's probably because you've internalized the worldview that he expressed so eloquently in this document. What do you think of that? That's a paradox for you. It is. You have been subverted. (laughs) Well, here goes a very, very brief and overgeneralized summary of a long story that will conclude on July 4th, 1776. We saw last week in the 1770s, the American colonies were feeling quite the financial squeeze from the British government. Britain and France were even involved in the Seven Years' War and running low on money. The British needed to fundraise, and they did so in the way countries fundraise to this day. They taxed their citizens, and this in the American colonies was not being well received. The basis of the colonists' complaints was that they were being taxed by an outside government that wasn't local. Local self-rule was the norm in that day. That means the guy that I know who lives in my town will make and administer the rules that I live by, not somebody far away that has no idea how we do things around here. They felt their independent political voice was being taken away. This tradition of local government was 160 years old by this point. You have to remember that despite the protests and even the violence, most Americans were not interested in creating a new country. Many were proud of Great Britain and being a part of the empire and the dynasty around the world, and there was protection in being British. The British knew this too, by the way. But things were getting aggressive on both sides of the debate. The British were sending more troops to America, including some of the most uh, brutal German mercenaries. Americans were getting more vocal and violent. And eventually, things are going to blow up and open military conflict happens, first in the Northeast places like Boston, but then it's going to spread through the whole 13 colonies. And this eventually led to the first proposal to completely leave Great Britain on June 7, 1776. It was proposed at a convention that was held for representatives of all the colonies. And you have to understand that every colony considered itself its own separate country. Think of it that way. It was no small thing to even consider joining these other people. They disagreed on a whole slew of issues, including the most divisive one of all, which was slavery. But in spite of this, they felt driven to convene to decide on what to do with this mess. Uh, For many of them, they wanted allies in a struggle. But independence was not a foregone conclusion. And how could they ever find common ground when they disagreed on many real issues, not the least of which, which was leaving the empire? Some people were talking about independence. Others wanted restitution. Uh, The simplest way to really think of it is in terms of a divorce, because I like to call the Declaration of Independence the best breakup letter in U.S. history. Uh, You look at it in terms of divorce, except King George is being divorced by 13 people all at the same time. He thinks the relationship is great, and he's happy with the status quo. He really has no idea why they think of themselves as an oppressed people, uh, just because they have to give him all their trade and pay more taxes. Hmm. That's part of the arrangement. has been working for years. In his mind, they've been happy and protected. From his perspective, he's provided the colonies with great lives. I mean, what more could those little ingrates want? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, when the Continental Congress meant to discuss the problems they had with Britain, there was no majority consensus in leaving the empire, but most, in fact, did not want to leave. But a few of them, namely John Adams, had faith they could come together. So 
Despite the lack of consensus, Congress nominated a drafting committee to compose a document. They were called the Committee of Five, and these are the big names in U.S. history. John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Robert Livingston, and Roger Sherman. And their assignment was to compose a Declaration of Independence. So Thomas Jefferson was the youngest in the group, (laughs) but he was already known for his eloquent writing style. So basically he was tagged. (laughs) <laughs> You're it. Yeah, by the the elder states when they put him to work doing that. So he will be primarily the uh, the author. The drafter. Yes. And so um, anyway, by June 28th, Adams was coming along fulfilling his mission and creating a conceptual framework for independence. And all but two states had gotten permission to leave. Only Maryland and New York were holding out. But let me say, that doesn't mean that everyone was in total agreement it didn't mean that the delegates would actually vote to uh, secede. It means they had permission to if they chose to. On July 1st, only nine colonies voted in favor of leaving. On July 2nd, they had all but New York to sign off on independence. And on July 4th, Congress approved a revised Declaration of Independence, the one that we know today, and they signed it. And maybe unlike how we think of it uh, on July 4th when Americans are eating barbecue and watching fireworks, witnesses say the atmosphere wasn't celebratory at all. Benjamin Rush said, and I'd like to quote, a pensive and awful silence pervaded the house as we were called up one after another to the table of the president of the Congress to sign what we believed by many at that time to be our own death warrants. You know, I kind of read that, and I can imagine the room being silent, but then I read that there's this one guy, there's always that awkward guy who tries to make a joke. Or maybe that (laughs) important guy who can break the tension. Maybe so. Well, in this case, uh, Benjamin Harris made a joke about Elbridge Jerry. Elbridge Jerry, that's the guy that gerrymandering is named after. Um, Anyway, he said... I shall have a great advantage over you, Mr. Jerry, when we are all hung for what we are doing now. From the size and weight of my body, I shall die in a few minutes. But from the lightness of your body, you will dance in the air for an hour or two before you are dead. A fat and skinny joke. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, you got to break attention. Um, Another point to mention is that it took another four days to get the document sent off to Paris. And there was confusion about how to exactly present it to King George and the British government. Oh, it's kind of like if you think of it as a breakup letter, they got this great letter, but now they don't have they don't know how to get it to the guy. (laughs) Yeah, it's always awkward breaking up. But in this case, King George didn't even see it until November of that year. And by then, the word had been sent out all over the colonies. Again, just like junior high, when everyone in the class knows that someone's broken up with you and you don't know yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in fairness to the colonies, which are not the United States yet, we weren't very experienced as a country, uh, not even really one day. And, And we clearly weren't very organized or even very cool in standing up to the king. Our clumsiness was very embarrassing to people like Silas Dean, He was the emissary to France that was in charge of getting the message passed along. He thought we basically embarrassed ourselves in our message delivery system. (laughs) Well, I would like to point out, and I think I made this point at the beginning, but that really wasn't even the main point on their minds. This was for the colonies. It was a propaganda pamphlet, and that's very clear when, when we read it. 
not really intended for King George as the primary audience. Indeed. And of course, you're going to take an Enlightenment document of John Locke's theory of self-rule, and you're going to present it to an autocrat. Yeah, there's, he wouldn't like that to begin with. There's no way those two <laughs> philosophies are going to mix. Good so, point. Uh, it, it was designed to solicit foreign help as much as anything else. Uh, after it was signed, uh, the Continental Printer had the arduous task of staying up all night making copy after copy. And these copies, these originals were known as the Dunlap broadsides, and there were about 200 of them. Uh, and they were sent to various committees and assemblies and commanders of Continental troops. And the Dunlap broadsides weren't signed. But John Hancock's name appears in large type on the bottom. Uh, one copy even crossed the Atlantic and actually reached King George III months later. So the official British response, of course, scolded, and I quote, the misguided Americans in their extravagant and inadmissible claim of independency. Woo! So, no, we do not right. accept. We do not. <laughs> Christy, I think this is a good time to read it. And after we read the first part, we can stop and explain what was the most important part of the Declaration of the Time. And then what the most important part has been over time. Because those two things haven't been the same thing. Uh, Another point to make is that the version most students read in their English class isn't the same as the version in history textbooks. That's because English people tend to prefer reading Thomas Jefferson's original draft Whereas the historical people want the uh, final product. And uh, just an interesting to point out, and especially if you're a student listening to this with your class, and we want to say Jefferson was highly annoyed at uh, the editing of his document, and so much so that the editing he referred to as mutilations. <laughs> well, I really wasn't aware of those differences until we compared my book versus your book. But if you're a student of rhetoric, and many of us are, I want to say that he doesn't stray very far from the Aristotelian outline that we're all taught when we're first learning how to write essays. And we all use, even today, an essay writing. He has an introduction, a background, a body, a refutation, and a conclusion. So, as we would start with any good essay, I think we should read the introduction. Okay. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. So we see two historical ideas that have been used often over time, this idea that separate and equal stations to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. And it's going to be more famously repeated in the next sentence. But here's the main idea. Notice how the divinity is being referenced. He didn't say Jehovah or Jesus. He says nature's God. In other words, no matter how you claim divinity, and most Britons were uh, Christians by faith, although Jefferson was somewhat ambiguous about That got himself in a little bit of trouble from time to time. Uh, We believe that there is a God, and he made all peoples of the earth the same. No one is higher than any other. This is regardless of any born condition, not even a king. And I want to insert this. This idea could only emerge in a colonial atmosphere completely separated from British aristocracy and social class structure. So um, this idea is powerful. You must remember that no one on planet Earth at this time anywhere believed this. Now, 
did Jefferson really believe this in the same way we believe this today? Uh, no. I mean, history is going to mature the idea. Uh, if we get a chance to talk about the workings of his life, it's easy to see. So that's why we have to say the idea was bigger than the man. And here I want to emphasize this word necessary. It's the 10th word in the whole document. And here's the idea. Since you, sir, have decided to resist God and defy his natural ordering of the universe, we really don't have any other choice. It's necessary. Of course, appealing to God that was the only higher authority left in the world at that time. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, that's the only one above king. <laughs> right, that's all that's left. <laughs> well, it's interesting to see that uh, the argument is, we're not wrong. You are. <laughs> Good propaganda. All right, next paragraph. Yes. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute a new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light or transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations proving invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute depotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient suffering of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of, King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To, and to prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. I love the word usurpation. It's <laughs> a big word and a little bit hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I want to point out, since the height of the British Empire, 63 separate countries have declared independence from Britain. We were the first. These were the foundational ideas so that will be taken by many other uh, independence movements later on. So here's the next big idea. This idea, and I can't emphasize this enough, the consent of the governed that underlies everything. We voluntarily agree to surrender some of our rights, not because some other person is better than us and they deserve to tell us what to do, but because we have chosen to submit to each other so that we can live more peacefully together. Uh, because as kids, we don't see authority like this. Uh, as a kid, you have to brush your teeth because your guardian makes you. You have to go to school because the law makes you. You are governed not by consent, but by oppression. <laughs> or at least that's what most children are going to think. <laughs> anyway, but uh, as you get older, you grow to understand that it's more complex than that. Um, I choose to stop at red lights. And yes, because if I don't, I'll get a ticket. Uh, but I'm also buying into a system that is agreed upon so that we can all 
take turns and exist without threat of annihilating each other in one way or another. Now, that's way easier said than done, and creating a just system is absolutely impossible. And we'll talk more about that next week with the Constitution. But here's the big idea Jefferson is putting out there. We have a right given by God to try, not given by a human. It's bigger than the biggest humans. It's bigger than the richest human. It's bigger than the human with the most guns which is how all of humanity had really kind of organized itself previously. So each individual should have some recourse to having a say. I want to talk a little bit about the language here before we go too much farther. These sentences are very, very long. The whole first paragraph is basically one sentence, and we call that in English a periodic sentence. And think of it this way, the most important part, it builds, 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 and really the most important part is close to the period, if you want to think of it like that. Uh, this first introduction does what all introductions do. It's just this vague philosophical introduction about what the rest of the piece is going to be about. That first paragraph really could have been about anyone at any time talking about any number of things. It's definitely very philosophical. It's beautiful, uh, but it's also clever and that it is divisive and it's cleverly divisive while not trying to sound divisive. He calls Americans one people, and he calls the British a different people. That is exactly what's important about this. If you're a student of U.S. history, you are understanding that a national consciousness is emerging. And even the colonials are not necessarily aware that a national consciousness is emerging. But this document shines a light on it. Uh, and that's really uh, an incredibly important point. Now, remember, that's not how they'd seen themselves up to that point. Uh, they were British citizens, but after that, they were citizens of Virginia or Massachusetts or Georgia or Maryland. They didn't see that they had anything in common with uh, each other. But now Jefferson is trying to subtly redefine how they saw themselves by saying, we are one people. You're the other people, and you the other person have done something very bad to us <laughs> and we're all one group and it's designed to be divisive, this kind of language. So the second paragraph that you read is not about the British or the Americans. It's basically a 200 word summary of the ideas of John Locke and his social contract theory. He was a British philosopher and he wrote a much larger document in his second treatise on government saying these kind of things. Well, there's definitely a tone shift between the first and second paragraphs. The second paragraph is very dignified. It's authoritative. It's concise. Many of the sentences end with multisyllabic words, which you might wonder, what does that mean? But these kind of words are more melodic and they sound better, especially when you're reading it out loud and it makes the language much more emotional. And this was something that Jefferson had been trained to do. How do you use words to make them more emotional? But beyond the emotional side, which you have to have if you're going to convince anyone of anything, um, we call that pathos. We're going to see the logic. And here he uses deductive reasoning. It's very simple to break down. So he's got his premises and then he's got his conclusions. Premise number one, all men are created equal. Premise number two, they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Premise number three, one of these rights or three of these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Premise number four, to secure these rights, in other words, to guarantee these rights, governments are created among men. 
So if you agree to premise one, two, three, four, if you agree that men are created equal, they have rights, these are the rights, and governments are supposed to protect those, then you get to this conclusion. Wherefore, any form of government becomes destructive, if you're destructive of this, it's the right of the people to get rid of the government. So if you accept these premises, logically, his conclusion makes total sense. And that's fantastic rhetoric. But some of these are even harder to accept. It's easy to say that we all should have life, liberty, and happiness. Where Jefferson felt a burden to defend himself was the idea that King George was the impediment to realizing that. In fact, uh, King George is so destructive that it was worth giving up your life over. And that's where we're going to see almost 30 pieces of evidence from Jefferson's perspective of bad things that King George was guilty of. And this is where we have to call Jefferson a modern-day influence because some of these are hyperbolic. That's true. And this is what we're going to call also uh, the body paragraphs of his essay. And I want to say this. He says... Let facts be submitted to a candid world. So these are his facts. Right. If you're a reasonable thinking person. You want facts. You're the candid person he's appealing to. So uh, he he was a good lawyer and uh, lots of his facts aren't actually facts. They are assertions. (laughs) And this is something we all should pay attention to when people are trying to be convincing. Uh, Just because you assert something, that in and of itself doesn't make it true. For example, I can say, I'm the greatest history teacher in the world. Therefore, everything I say cannot be questioned. Well, that's an assertion. I'm claiming to be something, but claiming something doesn't make it so. That's these bathroom scales you stand on will tell you. (laughs) So you're not the greatest history teacher in the world? Well, we're not saying that. We'll present those facts to a candid world. Um, Well, you know... I suppose there are those who might dispute it, but look at Jefferson's facts. They actually could be disputed. Read the first one. He has refused his assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. That's in Old English, but it means he refuses to make good laws. (laughs) That's pretty arguable as a claim. King George may take issue with that. Uh, He sees himself as being very beneficial in the laws he creates. So we will see some of these are facts, but many are assertions passing as facts. And that is what a skillful politician is always trying to do. So Christy, read as quickly as you can the list of grievances. We don't really need to dwell on all of them, but I do want to point this out. They are going to accuse King George III of every crime except kicking puppies. (laughs) my he didn't think of that one (laughs) jefferson would have put it in if he thought of it he has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation though his assent could be obtained and when so suspended he has utterly neglected to attend to them he has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only he has called together legislative bodies at places unusual uncomfortable and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measure. There's a lot of loaded words in every single one I of know, these. I know. It's very, very assertive. <laughs> he has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing 
with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise. The state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose, obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migration hither, and raising the condition of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat all their substance. So in other words, they eat our food. He has kept among us in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislators. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction, jurisdiction sorry, foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation, for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitations of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us by seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws and altering fundamentally the forms of our government, for suspending our own legislators and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coast, burned our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is, at this time, transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions." In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. That was a lot of complaints. That was a lot of complaints. And I want to point out there are more than just assertions. There are several very legitimate Sure, of course. Charges in there, but it's mixed with a few assertions. And I want to point this out. It's important to understand remarkably... Parliament is not mentioned one time in the Declaration of Independence. And Britain, 
was a constitutional monarchy. So uh, politics in Parliament were very tricky during this time period. The Tories supported the king, but there was a growing Whig faction that was growing more vocal in support of American independence. Now, once we get through all these grievances, we see the rhetorical language gets fancy again. Well, and here we go to the next section. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attention to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislator to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. Oh, that's a hard word to say. You said it. Consanguinity. 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 <laughs> they, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. So in this section, after you get through all the grievances, we're going to see uh, in rhetorical language what we call a refutation or perhaps the counter arguments. Basically, Jefferson is saying, I know what you're thinking. We should have given the British one more chance, uh, but this is why that's a bad idea. And he goes on with this list. We have, we have, we have. These are the things we've already done. We've already done our best. We've tried to give them another chance, and they didn't accept it. So it's definitely a bad idea. Once he gets through the refutation, now he's ready to get into more fancy language again. Gary, since I read uh, The Body, will you read the conclusion? <laughs> you read all the complaints. Yeah. I read the complaints. Yes, I will. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in General Congress, assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these United Colonies are, and of right, ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British Crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have the full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. We have in this last section the part that the refutation that we read as well as the very in the conclusion that you just read so much alliteration. We have that anaphora and we have all these things that are designed to give this impression that we have been working so hard. We have done everything that we could possibly do to hold this relationship together. And since we've done everything we can do and we've suffered so much, there's nothing that we can do except totally dissolve it. And here's the last sentence. And for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, and this is the line that's so famous, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, 
in our sacred honor. What we see is that at the beginning, everything is very philosophical. It's talking about human events and people, but now let's look at it in the first person. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. I mean, this kind of language deliberately sounds like something right out of Julius Caesar, uh, the old honor of the Roman Republic that called for the murder of a tyrant in the name of honor. And really, it's exactly what he's doing. This is Brutus calling on the conspirators to betray their leader, doing so in the name of honor, justice, protection of divine right. Yes, that's true. And if taken only as a document to free one colonial people from one colonial power, that alone makes it worthy of interest. Uh, I guess for students of rhetoric, but for the rest of us, we wouldn't care. It would be just one more event in a long story of humans fighting with each other over power. And yes, it is that, but I do want us to think of it as more than that. This document has formed the basis which has helped to define ideas that have done more to shape human freedom than almost anything. I mean, it has been the basis for equal voting rights. And you have to understand that even Jefferson, most of his life, didn't think anybody should vote except white males who own property, which is an exclusive group. But his words, his arguments meant more than he understood them at his moment. It's been used to provide equal access to office, equal access to education, and equal opportunity for for athletes. And the document after the revolution wasn't really universally understood as being very important. And most of the copies were not even preserved. They were just tossed out, if you can imagine that. There's there's a movie for Nicolas Cage right there to go. <laughs> Go find Finding the, them. The Dunlap broadside. So John Quincy Adams at least had the foresight to make a facsimile of it. And uh, that was the only one ever made in 1823. So it's possible it wouldn't even be remembered except for one clever thing that Thomas Jefferson did. In 1786, Jefferson encouraged a young artist by the name of John Trumbull to include the signing of the Declaration of Independence in his depictions of the Revolution. This painting really was influential in somewhat cementing the importance of the document. Well, we're out of time, so I guess we have to call it. I did want to include one final thought that a lot of people know, but I think it's so interesting it's worth bringing up again. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both died on the same day, ironically. And which date was that? The 4th of July. Hmm. But in 1826, the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. How crazy is that? They were collaborators on the Declaration of Independence, but they really spent most of their lives as political opponents, later reconciling in life. And when John Adams died, his last words were, Thomas Jefferson survives. It's like they're competing even to the bitter end. (laughs) I want to live just one more minute longer. Well, maybe it was competition, but it was also uh, a declaration of camaraderie. By the time of their deaths, they had become close friends. And uh, the truth of all that was that he was wrong. Jefferson had died hours before in Virginia. And Thomas Jefferson was so many things, including president of the United States, an ambassador to France, governor of Virginia, an inventor. Oh, my gosh. The things he's invented, you'd be stunned. All kinds of things. But he wrote his own epitaph as well as a sketch for the shape of his uh, marker for his tombstone. And let me read his instructions on a document that is undated. 
On the faces of the obelisk, the following inscription and not a word more. Here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. Because of these, he explained, as testimonials that I have lived, I wish most to be remembered. I love that because Jefferson knew he wasn't perfect, and I guess he knew that his own life didn't measure up to his own ideals, but he didn't want to be remembered for that. He wanted to be remembered for the ideals themselves, for these ideals that he has highlighted on his tombstone, the God-given human right, religious freedom of expression, whatever religion that is, and of course, the power of education. I'd say, since most of us believe those things, he has made an impression. (laughs) Without any doubt, he is foundational, a cornerstone to Western uh, political thought. So, uh, well, that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, before you get off your phone, please give us a five-star rating. And don't forget, if you want to support the podcast, text this episode or any episode to a friend. You can follow us on howtolovelitpodcast.com or check us out on our Facebook page and on our Instagram page. Peace out. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.